but touching what you just said there, there are some people who have had the opposite experience at the dining room tables when they were younger. You know, maybe it was always a, a place of conflict. Mm. You know, where parents would argue, uh, yeah. or there'd be a kind of silent chill. You know, so for some people, they have the opposite. You know, they they may be habitually staying away from the dining room table because that's in their in their history. And, and yeah. what mindfulness does is, as you say, it doesn't prescribe. It just allows space to to reflect and to share. And, and sometimes, quite rightly, people lock away, you know, some of these these emotions, these feelings, these experiences, because that's the safest thing to do at that particular time. Mm-hmm. And, and this is where, Deb, it's really important when we're working with mindfulness that we have this this clinical knowledge of you know, knowing when trauma may be present and, and, and being very careful around that and, and making sure the support is in place if needed. So that's another aspect which you know, we always have to keep in mind as mindfulness teachers or any therapist. What's best for our our patients and our participants? Always making sure we promote that. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Healthcare Network podcast. My name is Deb McLeod, and I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in. Today, I am delighted to say that I have Chris Barker joining me. He is a mindfulness teacher, and he also joins me with one of his clients, Pippa Gold. Pippa is a retired nurse and also a homeopath. Today, we're going to talk about the practice of mindfulness, so I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I did. So, without further ado, Pippa and Chris. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate your joining me so we can have a discussion about mindfulness as a practice and as teaching it. And Chris, you and I met via LinkedIn and we've talked to each other various times via the internet, but you've also presented mindfulness practice and techniques to some colleagues of mine. And I thought it'd be good for you to talk a little bit about why you got into mindfulness and started teaching it. I know you are a teacher, but also teaching it to people. And then Pippa, you've taken a mindfulness course from Chris, and I thought it'd be interesting to talk with you about that and how it was for you, and then see how the conversation flows between us and what we talk about, because we're all practitioners. We work with people. We all have utilize this in our own special ways and just see how the conversation flows. Does that sound okay with you? That's fine. Okay, great. Well, can I ask you, Chris, to, to start things off? Is that okay with you? Yes, Debs, and, and, and thank you very much for exploring mindfulness and, and taking sure. the space to, to show an interest. In. Sure. I know also you have your own personal practice, as you mentioned earlier. So um, I came to mindfulness myself back in 2012. I was a school teacher since... Uh, 1999, a very stressed head of department in a large secondary school, comprehensive secondary school. And one of the history teachers just happened to be offering this mindfulness course. And I, you know, I heard a word, I think that word is very popular at that time. Mm-hmm. And initially there was a resistance. I felt, mm, this sounds like meditation. It sounds like yoga. Um, sounds a bit Buddhist. Um, so I wasn't really taken at all, but I did do one of the courses because a lot of my colleagues came out of the first course and they were really speaking so positively about it. And for me, I found it fascinating. Um, And initially, it was very much the principles of mindfulness, um, which really appealed to me. 
I, I did struggle, I'll be open and honest, I did struggle with the day-to-day practices. Eventually, mm-hmm. I did get the hang of those. But it helped me get through a really difficult and stressful period of my life. Um, so I thought around about 2015, three or four years later on, I thought I'd maybe start sharing this with the students because I thought, you know, this would be great. If I'd been shown this when I was a lot younger, it'd be wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I started teaching. Um, I did some qualifications with the Mindfulness in Schools project, which is a, an independent charity um, mm-hmm. set up by teachers for teachers running mindfulness in schools from a very uh, authentic position. And, and I found their resources exceptional and their support and guidance. And I worked with students for a number of years um, on top of my sort of normal day-to-day teaching. And then I started teaching teachers as well. So I sort of went full cycle back in the same way that history teacher would introduce it to me. I was able to introduce others to it. And that's, that's one of the roles I still perform today. Um, around about 2018-19, I wanted to extend this a bit further and start to work with adult populations, particularly clinical populations. Um, mindfulness has been uh, utilised in the NHS since 2004 for recurrent depression. Um, there's avenues being explored in terms of current um, chronic pain. Mm. Um, other areas include things like addiction. Um, and I specialised in mindfulness for cancer, those right. people living with and beyond cancer. To do that, I had to go back to the University of Exeter and do two years of postgraduate training, um, which is a real treat. It's a real pleasure um, to work with some, some excellent colleagues down there, but also just have my eyes open again, go back to university to study. You know, it's a real honour and I'm, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. And that, that brought me to Pippa. Um, so we did a course uh, last, um, last September, last autumn. Yeah. Mm. And, um, and that's through the National Centre for Integrated Medicine. Um, they're very supportive of mindfulness. And they had some funding by Macmillan um, and also Penny Bron um, right. helped with some of the administration of that. So that's how Pippa and I got to know each other. That's nice. And can I can I ask you, before we jump in and start talking with Pippa, can I ask you, what was it about focusing on cancer? Was there something specific? Uh, and, and you don't have to tell me. I, I mean, absolutely. It's not a problem. I'm I'm very open about my own history with cancer. My father had a type of cancer. My sister-in-law died from cancer, and I had precancerous cells many years ago. So I had to have a hysterectomy. So I'm very open about that, and I, so I am quite aligned and want to help support people feel as good as they can. But what, do you mind sharing what your link with that was? Yes, Deb. So so on this occasion, I you know my my father did have prostate cancer but that was after I'd started investigating this course so um, mm-hmm. but it's a course written by a lady called Trish Bartley mm-hmm. and I became aware of her work at the University of Exeter and it just fascinated me I thought you know it really seemed to connect with with the participants and the audience so I, I invested a great deal of time researching the evidence base behind it you know the research and that's been going on since 2000 across the world it's not just in, in Europe or just in the UK and there is some compelling evidence that it, it really does bring positive benefits. At this stage, Deb, it's not significant in terms of the clinical significance. So that's why you won't find it prescribed on the NHS, but you will find it um, in outpatients clinics um, and aspects like that. So there's no personal reason, particularly Deb, for me to get involved on this occasion. Yeah. Um, 
it just spoke to you. And it's true. I mean, it's, it's interesting when people, I haven't, I haven't been diagnosed with it, but having been around loved ones and I've got friends that, that are going through it right now. And, and I work, you know, we have a, I have another podcast called Cancer Talks. So people talk about how lost they feel that moment that that word has been said. And one of my brothers, well, a couple of my brothers have had it and just, they've said it, it is just, so scary when you hear those words so how you find ways to find your own sense of inner calm is so important because we know that when our body's overly stressed and the impact it has on inflammation and thank you for sharing that I just thought I would ask so if I move on you and Pippa met so Pippa you took the course that Chris was offering on mindfulness and cancer is that correct so that's how you met him yes I did and you are uh, you are a retired nurse and mm-hmm. a qualified homeopath. So, were you? Do you mind if I ask you? Were you attending to help your own practice, or was it for a personal reason? Purely personal. Okay. What was that like for you taking the course? Is that okay if we talk about that some? It's, it's fine. Yes. Okay. It, it was very um, beneficial to be with other people. Um, a bit shocking to find so many of them so young. Yeah. Um, and um, it was a very held group. Chris mm-hmm. managed it beautifully um, with great love and tenderness and, and real support. Um, it felt very safe and people shared what they felt able to share, some a lot, some a bit less. Um, and uh, we were gently encouraged, never badgered, um, and people grew and learned as they needed and wanted. And that felt good. It sounds like Chris seems to be who he is. I'm going to embarrass him because he's a very unassuming man. And um, so I'm going to embarrass him. But you seem to do that at all times, Chris. You seem to really hold people, you know, in a manner that allows them to be where they are in in their own space, which I think is is so important. So you have a, a full process that you take people through. Is that what you do in your program? Just touching on that aspect, Deb, actually, and mindfulness, one of the key phrases we always stands out for me is that, is that the person's the expert in their own experience. Mm. So it's not for me to prescribe, it's not for me to diagnose, it's not for me to prompt or tell. You know, I, I offer, I think is a phrase, you know, I, I offer some, some options and some spaciousness around some of the stresses and difficulties that turn up. Um, and then, you know, from that, people will find their own inner wisdom. And, and I know that phrase in the wisdom that kind of makes me smile because it all sounds a bit kind of guru-ish and a bit out there, you know. Um, and if you said to me in 2012, what does inner wisdom mean? I think I would have shrugged my shoulders and just looked blankly at you. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, this well, is happiness. You know, you have to discover it for yourself. Um, yeah. And that's what makes it so difficult to describe that. Um, and, and people who have experienced mindfulness will, will tell you so much about it. But until you experience it yourself, it's, it's not easy to communicate, you know, via a podcast or via a, a video or anything like that. It's really a felt experience. So, um, May I interject? Yes, yes, please, please. Um, with the inner wisdom, it's very real. But I think some people can find it themselves and other, other people need support to be not necessarily guided, but held while they're doing their own exploring. And that's what you've done so very ably, Chris. Thank you. And just taking back to that initial question from Deb. So the, the process, Deb, of how this starts is that we always begin with a pre-course meeting. 
And, and this is a very honest and open meeting, as Pippa mentioned. You know, people only ever share as much as they're comfortable with. Um, and, and that may change over a period of time. But to start off with, it, it's basically a, a little bit of alignment. You know, I'll always what people are looking for similar to what mindfulness can offer. And we'll be very transparent, honest and open with that. So if people are really looking for something which isn't compatible, you know, we'll, we'll have conversations about where alternative support might be. But often, actually, people are looking for things which are compatible for mindfulness, which is that kind of ability to stop and pause and see where we are in our lives. And in doing so, we then develop this greater self-understanding. And, and emerging out of that self-understanding are choices. So often we spent many a, a year, and I smile when I say this because I know it certainly happened to me, spent many a year habitually driven by our routines, our roles, and those habits which just keep us locked into this sort of autopilot. We're almost going through life as a human doing rather than a human being. Mm. And mindfulness provides us an opportunity to look at things in a different way. It allows us to slow life down a little bit. And then in doing so, we can really start to see what, what's distressing us, what's draining our energy, what's depleting us, um, and also the opposite, what's nourishing, what's enjoyable, what's rising and you know, lifting our spirits. And then we can have some choices. Um, so the pre-course meeting is, is a little bit of a, an exploration around that. Um, and then, as Pippa said, we then go on to the eight-week course. And, and, and people are held and supported as much by the group as by myself or any other mindfulness teacher. And the group is very powerful, dynamic in, in mindfulness. Nice. I think what I find interesting is so many people don't really even think about applying mindfulness in their lives until they've hit some sort of storm. And I was, I was doing a little bit of research before we were chatting and I was, I just thought, you know what, I wonder how many emails, you know, emails coming in, just, there's constant, there's always something just going on and, you know, we're being bombarded constantly, aren't we? And I just, a silly, but also amazing statistic, 306.4 billion emails are sent every day. How frightening. <laughs> and that's just emails. Mm-hmm. And that's that was in 2020. And that was, you know, who knows, you know, now. I couldn't find anything specific now. And in 2021, there are 3.96 billion of us on social media. So, and most people have eight different social media platforms that they're working on. So the interesting thing that I find is that we've got a multitude of things going on. We are constantly being bombarded with things that we either think we should be doing work-wise and communication-wise and connecting up-wise. But there are times when I sit down and think, am I hearing myself? Am I really hearing what's going on within myself? And I I think that with regards to the, the mindfulness, there is an essence of, how can we work with people to say and educate people to say that start thinking about it now before you have a storm of events going on in your life? And how do you take that practice? It's wonderful that we have it to grab onto when we are in the middle of a, a shit storm. Excuse my mouth. Um, but how do we how do we do that? And I don't really have an answer. It's probably a rhetorical question, really. But. Um, it's just something I found really fascinating looking at 
these statistics and just thought it'd be interesting to talk about that. And both of you are, are practitioners. It must have been, when did you retire, Pippa, as a nurse? When did you retire? As a nurse, I stopped in 98 or something like that, 99. All right. So a few mm. years ago. And ago. did you qualify as a homeopath after that? I mean, or no, were you thinking? All that. Right. I was right. Double for quite a few years. Right. So this is really just to be an open discussion about it and how you perhaps use it in your own life and how you use it with your clients. And I mean, I can certainly say from my own standpoint, I I would be in a different place in space if I didn't use a form of mindfulness. We all have things going on. And if I didn't have that sense of giving myself the time to ground myself first thing in the morning and before I go to bed at night I have reflection at night and think about what's happened and setting a tone for the next day what do you all do for your own health and well-being and and practice do you apply can we talk about that yes all right um I do a little bit of mindfulness I'm better at doing the short exercises than the whole ones on a regular thing although it's a, a work in process I recognize that it's a life-changing pattern um so that's on gently happening I think we're um, all a work in progress yes yes um and otherwise I get great calmness from nature and walking out with the dog and if I've got time to enjoy it um those kind of things and I adore my garden and that, that does a lot of that kind of stuff um huge amount of support from friends uh, close friends um, and I have strong faith, so there's a lot of support there. And my family, my sister in particular, um, those sort of areas feed me. Is she the one you share, like you do yeah. doggy yes. care? Exactly. <laughs> Lovely. Um, so, so I think for myself, Deb, this takes me back to a conversation I was having just on Monday night with a group of teachers um, from second or middle schools, actually. We've got some middle schools still in Somerset. I know they're quite rare around the country. And they were talking about what we describe as the longer practices. Um, and I know Pippa mentioned some of those shorter practices which pop up in day-to-day -day life, just fit within our schedule very naturally. Sometimes we're waiting for the kettle to boil or when we're out in nature with a dog or you know, just taking those moments to check in with what's around us. And the longer practices um, are often a bit more challenging because it means putting some time to one side, 20 minutes, half an hour, and, and doing a more formal practice or meditation, whichever phrase people prefer. Um, and what I was saying, Deb, is for me, from my personal experience, and we always speak from our personal experience in mindfulness, Deb, in that sort of first person. So I start my day with a half an hour um, sitting practice. And, and this allows me to become aware of um, any body sensations, helps me connect with my breath, um, allows me to connect with any sounds in the, in the area where I do this. Uh, sometimes there's some birds singing because we're just into spring. Um, and also then connecting with our thoughts in the mind. And I was just relaying to one of these participants that sometimes my, my thoughts can run. You know, they can be really busy. And I often use the analogy of the weather system. So, you know, like those clouds going over, you know, through the sky, you know, being blown along on a, a strong breeze. And, and that's the way it is. So, you know, mindfulness isn't about relaxation mindfulness isn't necessarily about clearing our mind off these thoughts but actually giving us a window to look into what's happening in our world how am i 
in this particular moment and, and seeing when it's stormy and, and also seeing when it's sunny and, and seeing when there's rain clouds and seeing when it's just a, a, a big, heavy layer of blanket fog. You know, all of these will turn up because that's how life is. And then, you know, these longer practices give us an insight into what that's like. And then later on in the day, so I'm still in school, so I still work in secondary school. So, um, you know, I have some busy days for the students. Those moments that Pippa started touching on, you know, where you can come back to that connection with yourself in that short instant. Now, for me, a, a small example would be walking down the corridor from one classroom to the next. I, I get 15 to 30 seconds between groups of children. And in that 15 to 30 seconds, I can often allow my body to calm, allow my mind to calm, open my awareness to these senses. And that's because I've been doing my, my sort of longer daily practices. So they kind of, if you like to say it, sort of boost up the bank balance a little bit. You know, every time you do a longer practice, you pay in a slightly larger check. <laughs> and then during the day, you're drawing out small amounts of money or, you know, resources as needed. And that's what helps me keep me going through the day. And then as Pippa touched on, you know, that gratitude practice last thing at night, that's, that's really valuable. Um, because as human beings, we do have a negative attention bias. We, we evolved ahead of other species because we managed to evade lions and saber-toothed tigers at one point by constantly having an awareness of danger. Mm -hmm. And of course, nowadays, that danger doesn't show up in the form of saber-toothed tigers and lions. It does show up in terms of social media. It does show up in terms of, you know, the, the constant stream of negative news that comes through naturally, you know, about our world. Uh, and sometimes also those stressful interactions with other people. So sometimes it's really important to cultivate a more positive um, awareness of, of the joys that we have during the days. And these can be the smallest moments, you know, from seeing the sun come up to hearing the birds sing to one of the smiles from the students at school or somebody saying thank you, or you, know, you just feel that you've helped out in some ways. And can you tell me, you have a variety of programs that you offer for your clients don't you so you not only as you'd said you you are working with teachers and you're working with students but you can you just talk through a little bit about the different things that you offer so if there are people that are listening it that are healthcare practitioners they can get an idea of the different types of mindfulness work because you don't just focus on working with teachers or people who have cancer can you expand on that some yes it's a depth you know, I'm recently qualified from, from Exeter, as we, we mentioned earlier. So at the moment, the clinical populations I am qualified to work with uh, are those living with and beyond cancer and also other life-threatening conditions, and that includes COVID-19. Right. Um, so that's, that's an application which I am qualified in. I'm also qualified, as you mentioned, working with students and teachers in schools and that extends to parents and, and other staff in school settings. Um, I'm currently sort of beginning some work with addiction, um, right. And at the moment, you know, this is quite important to be professional around these aspects, Deb. So I'm not qualified in the field of working with people with addiction. So I don't at this stage, but I'm exploring that. And my next step after getting to know this population in the next 12 months, uh, I have a sort of a single hourly role once a week, which will enable me to get better known and understanding the needs of this population. I'll then start running the first few courses um, with somebody who's who's got a much deeper clinical knowledge, and we often do that. That's how we get into you know, introduce to new populations that we work with. Right. Um, the, the primary one that we've all been taught mostly Deb, to start off with is is the one for depression, because right. as I mentioned earlier on, the NHS do prescribe mindfulness 
uh, as an effective treatment for the current depression. It's, it's equivalent to taking medications. Uh, so, you know, very powerful in that sense. Absolutely. It's a, it is a wonderfully powerful medicine, isn't it? We have that ability. It's learning how we can apply that. And one of the things that as a nutritional therapist previously, we've talked a little bit about how working with people and eating, because the other aspect of our of health and wellness, when working with, with people who, and it's not just eating disorders that I, I'm addressing here, it's eating in general and how, again, it's that distraction of you will have clients come and say, oh, I've got terrible stomach problems. And a lot of it is because they're just not taking that time out to sit down and enjoy their meal and enjoy the process of, of making their foods because a lot of people get their foods brought in and they use the microwave. And, you know, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. My mom had to do that when she was older. She used to love to cook and then couldn't. Okay, but it's still having that moment of sitting at the table. And I didn't know about you, but I grew up six o'clock. We were at that table. We couldn't bring, we brought ourselves and there was nothing. You know, we sit down at the table, we would eat and have a conversation with each other. And that is a lost art. One of the things that I'm, I know that you're also looking into is mindfulness work and, and eating, but do you work with any nutritional therapists right now just as far as uh, helping people utilize that? Not And again, not just as eating disorders, but helping people utilize this as a skill set, as it were, for their own health and wellness. Does that make I, sense? Yes. As a health visitor, I did a lot of nutrition um, education, support and what have you. And one of my mantras almost was um, just try one meal a week Sunday lunch or something sit down together and talk and get the children there and, and they learn from you manners let alone anybody else um, and actually eat and discuss and, and learn um, and it just feels so important and as you say it's a lost treasure from family life to a large extent and partly because the houses haven't got space for tables and all that kind of stuff I know. They don't really have dining tables anymore. I mean, ours does get cluttered up with stuff all the time. So, you know, it, it's it's easily done, isn't it? It is. And, and Deb, it's, um, we, we met and spoke with some nutritionists a, a short while ago. So following on from that, I've, I've taken a real interest in mindful eating. And I've, mm -hmm. I've read three of the sort of leading publications recently. And this has led me to work with a, a lady called Andrea in, in America. And I just started last week on a 12-week course, training course, to become a, a mindfulness-based eating uh, teacher. So that's a new journey for me. It's a new new area, a new aspect. And exactly as Pippa mentioned, and you touched on yourself, Deb, it's, it's as much about how we eat the food as as what food we're eating. And, and it's really not prescribing, as I've said before. It's not saying this is a diet, these are the number of calories, this is what you should be eating, this isn't what you should be eating. You know, many people will be you know, familiar with those messages, they've been on many diets before. Mm -hmm. and, and diets themselves, with the best intentions, can often distort natural eating because yeah. we, we have these self um, or the diet imposes these restrictions. And also those diets take responsibility. So they take all the decision making out of the process. So you can't have this, but you can have this. And what we see with mindful eating is an alternative. It's a, like a lifestyle. So it actually says, well, let's explore with curiosity what foods do we really enjoy? You know, there's no, you know, red list. There's no foods we can't have. 
and, and you know there is also you know some sensible suggestions about as Pippa mentioned how do we eat these meals and, and also as you touched on Deb you know is it a case of we're eating because actually there's something else not quite right mm. you know this might be a social need it might be um, something to do with compassion it might be something to do with our you know family set up our careers it might be habitual that we learn from younger younger ages so it really takes this holistic approach there which is lovely um, so I'm really keen to find out how this 12 weeks unfolds um, and then sort of you know see if we see if this is, is suitable for people see if people are valuable you know value sort of taking this course well I'm sure it is just because of the the sense of working with people and understanding as you say there is no prescription and from a, an integrative practitioner looking at what's going on with our client, that's the most important thing of understanding what their lifestyle is and gaining an idea of what really is going to work best for them. And I, I think it, it's also about knowing that it is, it's encompassing all of those things. It's not just about what they're eating, but the lifestyle surrounding it and understanding, as you say, do they sit at a table? <laughs> do they have a conversation with each other once a week around the tables? I mean, I would have had such a different upbringing had I not had that with my family. And we had huge arguments and we had great times and we had just normal times, but we were at that table every night. <laughs> it's that holistic approach, Deb, which I think that word can often be misinterpreted, holistic. Yeah. But, you know, touching what you just said there, there are some people who have had the opposite experience at the dining room tables when they were younger. You know, maybe it was always a, a place of conflict, mm. you know, where parents would argue uh, yeah. or there'd be a kind of silent chill, you know. So for some people, they have the opposite, you know. They, they may be habitually staying away from the dining room table because that's in their, in their history. And, and yeah. what mindfulness does is, as you say, it doesn't prescribe. It just allows space to, to reflect and to share. And, and sometimes, quite rightly, people lock away, you know, some of these these emotions, these feelings, these experiences, because that's the safest thing to do at that particular time. Mm. And, and this is where, Deb, it's really important when we're working with mindfulness that we have this, this clinical knowledge of you know, knowing when trauma may be present and, and, and being very careful around that and, and making sure the support is in place if needed. So that's another aspect which you know, we always have to keep in mind as mindfulness teachers or any therapist, you know, what's best for our, our patients, our participants always making sure we promote that. So how do you manage that with your clients? Because you are bringing up those those emotions. So how do you hold that person so they are in a safe place? Because you're with the mindfulness, I realize it's allowing them to come into that place of, of being present. But, you know, how are you holding them as they walk out the door? Because you're in that safe space. What are you doing to, to help them as they go out into the big bad world or the big good world? That's a really good question, Devon. And Pippa, perhaps if I describe the process of the eight-week course, and then if you, at any point, Pippa, if you want to chip in and say, well, this is kind of how it played out for me or how, how I saw it play out for others in, the, in our group. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, so Deb, what we begin with is this pre-course meeting. And when we do ask some quite um, detailed questions, or we provide the space for some detailed answers, perhaps, or discussions around this. Um, because it's much easier for us to, to begin a discussion if that comes up in a pre-course meeting, a difficulty of perhaps a trauma or some, you know, something from the past which is a little bit uncomfortable. 
than it is in front of a, a larger group. Mm. So I'm holding my hands out in front of me as I say this, you know, we're trying to create a safe space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the first four weeks of the course, yeah, we very much begin to build our attentional capacities. So, you know, this is kind of recognizing when we're on autopilot. We, we're going through 101 tasks at 101 miles an hour, as you mentioned. You know, yeah. if we had lots of children in the house and busy schedules, you know, naturally the autopilot has got a role. It, it gets us through. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we can end up spending a lot of time in autopilot, not really being fully present for what we're doing. So we spend a lot of time in those first three or four weeks building our capacity around exercises like a body scan, moving the awareness through different parts of our body, reconnecting with some parts of our body, which, you know, for whatever reason, we may have lost touch with. Um, and also some mindful movement, Pippa. I'm not sure if you remember doing do. mindful movement in the course. And, and then we move into the sitting practice, which I described earlier. So, so Pippa, do you remember, how, how did you find those first three or four weeks of the course? I think I was um, testing the water with you and with myself. Um, but I felt very open to what was happening. Um, and some of the practices that you were trying to teach us were much easier. Um, the movement one, for instance, was much easier than the sitting in a body scan one um, because I'm a movie kind of person, I suppose. Um, and, yes, yeah, so it was just a building up of information, um, supportive encouragement, um, and... Um, I felt open and willing to have a go, but sometimes I wasn't quite sure where that willingness was taking me. Um, and But it was always safe, and you were always there if there was a hiccup or a particular problem or a worry or something like that um, off, off um, screen. You would, you would be there either by telephone or by email or whatever, and that was very helpful, I think, for a lot of people, uh, and it was very generous to have that there. Um, it was a gentle growing, I think. I, a lot, quite a lot of it I was aware of anyway through all the other stuff I've done before. But just um, when life hits you on the, on the nose again, it's very good to stop and, and regroup and rethink. Um, and because I'm inclined to go in life anyway, it was very useful to stop, basically. Yeah. And, and, and Pippa, you touched on that phrase supportive and... You know, mm. I, I know I was available between sessions and, and I'm always quite explicit in saying that I'm only qualified in mindfulness. You know, I'm not qualified as a counsellor or any yes, other. Yes, you were very about that. And that was fine. But I also think that support for me, Pippa, came as much from the rest of the group. Um, people on the same journey as yourself, um, different stages, different places. Um, and the invitation to only share as much as you were comfortable with. Yes. Um, so... How did, how did you feel that? Did that hold, hold a group in some way? Or? I think it did, yes, because no, nobody felt threatened that I was aware of. Um, and I said earlier on, some did share and some didn't much. Um, and that felt right for themselves, presumably. Um, but the invitation was there for whoever and whenever. And that was very freeing and supportive. And, and, and then Deb said, so- that's, that's kind of the first half of the course, the first mm-hmm. four weeks. And then answering your, your original question, Deb, about working with difficulty. Mm-hmm. You know, because difficulty is going to show up in life. Yeah. You know, this, this is one of the certainties, you know, however much we may or may not want it to be there. 
So the second part of the school course, we then really start to move and shift towards what is challenging for us. And we do this in small steps. You know, as, as I described on the course paper, we don't reach up to the top shelf and drag down the biggest, heaviest mm. problem we've got and, and um, you know, try to explore that one. We begin with the small steps, you know, things which have been perhaps a bit distracting that week, a difficult communication, frustration, you know, maybe linked to, to lockdown or, or other aspects of our lives. And we start to explore around the edges there. And we do this by um, this phrase, passing splitting our experience down into its core elements. So what's showing up in the body? What thoughts are in the mind? Is there an emotion which is present? And then is there an impulse or an urge to do something? And, and when we start to see our experience split into those four different threads, we can start to see where we're getting pulled and dragged towards what's you know, habitual. You know, we all have our, our sort of default modes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it also starts to open this idea of a new possibility. You know, I don't have to do this habit. I don't have to react in this way. Um, and we start to build the skills. And then when we've, we've got those skills more developed, and it's a life journey, you know, I, my skills are very much still developing. Mm. Um, then we can start to challenge some of those more complicated or, or you know, familiar returning patterns and issues that we yeah. So, Pippa, how did you find the second part of the course in that sense? It builds um, the bricks more stably, if you like, and you have to get those building bricks in, in place, otherwise you've got nothing else to fall back on later. You may adapt beyond that, um, but that feels really important to have done all that and moving forwards with that second half uh, with a wider picture and more scope. Yeah, and, and, and the phrase I often use on the course was, was tools in a toolbox. Absolutely. Mm. And, um, no. Known as a different tool for different situations. Yes. Mm. Always important to have. Absolutely. Something that we all want to have as practitioners to give people different tools that they can pick and choose yes. at various points in times. What I wondered was... You know, if someone's looking for a mindfulness practitioner, Chris, obviously they they can get in touch with you. But just as a generic idea, what are some of the key things that they, for people listening, what are some of the things that they would want to look for in a practitioner or a counselor like yourself? Yeah, so so Deb, there's been a, a change in recent years, mm-hmm. and there's now what's called BAMBA, and BAMBA stands for the British Association of mindfulness-based um, approaches. And, and this is a really a national register of, of good practice um, teachers or guides or coaches or whatever phrase people use for mind, mindfulness teachers. Uh, and also on that website, it specifies which areas they work within. So for example, if you look at my listing on the website, it you know, says I, you know, I work in schools and I work with those with cancer and living with and beyond other life-threatening conditions. Sometimes it will list people working with depression or anxiety, um, mindfulness eatings we've already touched on. There's, there's a whole broad range. I won't, I won't go through those. Um, so that's, that's a national sort of database. Uh, and in order to be registered onto the, the BAMBA uh, website, you, you need to go through a number of um, quite rigorous trainings with organisations which have been approved by BAMBA. So in many ways, Deb, that's a good starting point. Okay. Now, 
you know, mindfulness has been evolving for a number of years. So that doesn't mean that there's not actually some very good practitioners out there who are not badly registered. Um, but also we know that with anything else in, in life, if there's the commercial opportunity to make money from it, then sometimes people will step in because it's a trend, it's a fashion. Yeah. And as a result, you might find there's some people out there advertising mindfulness or meditation-based practices, which actually are not qualified. Um, and, you know, obviously I couldn't speak on, you know, unless somebody gave me an individual who I am to know, it wouldn't be my position to do that. So, um, you know, so knowing that Bamba is there, if, if you wanted to double check that, that would be perhaps a good place to start. Yeah, that's really helpful because, you know, you want to at least, if you're going to find the right person, you know, it's a nice way, as you say, to start and then you can take it from there. I mean, you know, you and I have just sort of gone on and on with our conversations just through understanding what you've done, which is great. And I wouldn't hesitate to recommend you to people because I think what you're doing is is wonderful and, and your approach is really wonderful. Can I ask you, have you got any particular books that you think are good for people to start snooping through and to get an idea of I mean I've got I've got the one on mindfulness-based cancer recovery which is I think you I think you recommended that one yes that's that's, yeah one by Trish Bartley yeah Yeah, it's a really lovely book so I I think for a a general starting point there's a there's a good book by Mark Williams and Danny Penham and Penham's spelled P-N-H-A-M it's it's called um Finding Peace in a Frantic World. And it's, it's a nice, easily accessible read, um, which speaks in very simple language, give lots of examples of people and how they use it in their day-to-day lives. It includes a CD, or nowadays it's probably a download, yeah. um, of the, the, the essential components of an eight-week course and those tools in the toolbox that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And if you read through the chapters one by one, it does map out over that eight-week course. So in many ways, if you wanted to start off by sort of doing a self-guided program at home and finding peace in a frantic world, Mark Williams, Danny Penn, and that's a good place to start. Um, As ever, Deb, it's it's the same with any other course that you can, or book that you can buy. You know, they're great, wonderful place to start, get an introduction to it. Um, It's like trying to teach yourself the guitar. So Absolutely. You, know, Absolutely. You, can, you can do it through magazines and audio tracks and, and that may be a really good place to start to see if it's, mm. it's, if, if it's something for you, something yeah. you might be interested in. And then at some point, if you are interested in it, then by all means, finding an eight week course uh, with qualified mindfulness teaching, that's probably then the next thing. Yeah. But it's also that just, as you say, I think the biggest thing is having something to look through and read and, and get your head around a little bit more to one to see if it's just something that will be in tune with who you are and how you start your own practice. Because I would imagine, well, you want to be practicing it yourself if you're going to be teaching it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of aspects. (laughs) Absolutely right, Deb. You know, I think, you know, you wouldn't really have much integrity if you didn't practice mindfulness and you were teaching it. And I think it's the same as anything else, whether like yourself, you're qualified in nutrition, Deb, or, or, you know, people at homeopathy, you know, I think we, we have to live and eat what we, we kind of teach. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's, it's not authentic. And I think that shows through. Mm-hmm. And I think people will see through that. And just another aspect that we touched on, you know, by all means, spending 10 or 12 pounds on a book to start off with. And you know, that's a really good investment. 
because mindfulness courses are often 150, 200, 250, 300 pounds. Because of course they're over eight weeks with somebody who's clinically qualified. Um, so you know, by all means, it's sensible sometimes to spend that 10 or 12 pounds first, see if you're really interested in it, mm-hmm. before committing quite a large sum of money and time um, to then find out that you know it's not something that you you know perhaps appeals to you. So. It's really helpful. We know that there is ample research on reducing our stress levels and the benefits on our health and wellness. There is no doubt about that. And I think that there is a tremendous amount of pressure as practitioners to sort of embody this ideal of a perfect life, you know, and as nutritional therapists, we often talk about how, oh, do you eat? crisps and do you do these sorts of things and I'm I'm a wicked demon for salted peanuts I can't you know I just love them it's one of my favorite things to eat and you know that's fine but there's giving each other or giving people permission to be human within that ability to practice your own mindfulness and I think that's such an important aspect for practitioners to apply but also because that can also be conveyed to their clients as well and I just think it's such an important thing because wanting to work with your client and saying this is a great approach to take is you know we can find the research on it but I just think it's nice for the practitioners listening that they can see these books and check them out but also check out your website and other people on the Bamba website to see what they're doing and how they can apply it for their own lives. Because I know there are a lot of people in our world that are really stressed because they are overwhelmed with work or they've decided to do something different and they're not getting the work that they want. So it's how you can apply that. And I think it's important. Um, coming back to what you were saying um, about the salty peanuts idea, I think it's really helpful if people are given permission to do do something changing 80% good and 20% not quite so good. Um, They're not, not aiming for the 100% because that's too hard for most of us. And I think that gives a bit of comfort and a bit of um, leeway and a bit of sense, really, and how people can go forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as Pippa touched on there, there that balance, you know, it's, it's exploring, finding that only balance for you as an individual and, and knowing, you know, there's no off limits, there's no rights and there's no wrongs. Mm-hmm. You know, I often say, Pippa, that, you know, you can't get mindfulness wrong, really, which, which makes people smile, you know, apart from really, I guess, not doing it. But, you know, that's always a choice <laughs> in itself, you know, whether it's for you it's or true. whether it isn't for you. Um, but, you know, just having that, that freedom to explore your own experience. And, and, and coming back to that inner wisdom I touched on earlier, you know, you, you have an intuitive feeling whether it's right or not. Yeah. And, and then knowing if you've got the tools in the toolbox to decide what you want to do. Do you find with last year with COVID and being in lockdown, are you finding that people are able to talk about their anxieties more and or address the concept of mindfulness more? Are you seeing that there's an increase in this? I'd use insight timer i do laugh at myself that i'm utilizing a social media app for me to to go into my own meditation my meditative practice but you know we do do that so i I think that's a lovely example you know um how we can almost precondition ourselves to feel that any app or any technology could be bad for us you know we should be doing less of this and more connection with people but you know if this app you know insight timer whichever app you happen to choose has got real value for you it supports you with your practice. It supports you with something you want to do in your life. 
you know, by all means, use it, embrace yeah. it. You know, it's I a tool. Do. It's a I do, absolutely. Box, yes, yes, um, yes, I do. <laughs> I, I think the, um, the flip side of that is, of course, when we limit ourselves to only what we find on our phone, as an app, mm-hmm. you know, and we, we, you know, if we don't find what we're looking for, we then use a second best and then a third best and a fourth best. And, and really it's just a distractive behavior to keep our sales procrastinating from really facing up to something else we know we should be doing. You know, mm-hmm. That's often wrong, which can come there. It's true. Um, coming back to the other original question, Deb, um, I, I haven't seen a, uh, an increase in inquiries at this stage um, in terms of coming out of, you know, 12 months of lockdown and, and, you know, what we hear on the news, which are these increased levels of mental health challenges amongst the general population. But I, I sense this may be coming through at some point in the next six to 12 months. I sense there may be a lag period. And also, I, I also believe it might be a, a challenge, a logistical challenge to put the people who need the support in touch with the people who can provide the support. Yeah. So I'll be interested for both yourself and Pippa to any, any thoughts around that question? Too? And how do we get this support, this help to people who really need it? By getting the information out there is the obvious first step. Mm-hmm. I think it's just growing the awareness of, of who to talk to. Uh, absolutely. And, and being guided. Because one of the things I think with a practice of meditation is that people get frustrated with the act of meditation. I try to meditate and nothing happens. My brain goes everywhere. Well, you know, my brain goes everywhere too. But, do. Yeah, they do. They're, they're, they're busy, active things. So it's learning how to work with that and, and let things flow, as you were saying earlier. And I think having some guidance, it's really, it's, it's, it's like coming to see a homeopath or coming to see a nutritional therapist, you go to see them so they can give you the tips and tools so you can utilize this practice in a more effective manner. And it is an investment in yourself because I'm from the States, you know, you have to pay for your health care and people are not as used to having to pay for their health care over here. So investing in your own health and well-being, I think people are getting better at it, but it's a, a we're bridging that gap. So there are a multitude of things, but primarily it's about letting people know that this is a service and that this is something that is available to people so they can learn how to use it and utilize it so they can feel better and not have to hit that storm of unease. They can do it preventively. And that's what we as practitioners are all about is preventive medicine, isn't it really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that takes me right back to a question you mentioned at the start of the session. Um, you know, why is it that people feel they have to have something wrong, something not quite in sync, something not quite working right for them, or perhaps they come across an illness, which then brings them to asking for this support or, or signpost to this support, be it mindfulness or something else. And, and, and the flip side, of course, is, is providing ways of, you know, sharing these practices um, these opportunities with people before it happens mm-hmm. so they flourish and they grow and they they have a wonderful you know you know difficulties will still be around but they'll recognize the difficulties along with the wonders and the joys and you know there's there's sometimes a bit of a better balance there mm-hmm. um, and, and part of this is coming through schools which is nice to see um, yeah you know there's a myriad project which is being run by oxford university and um, this is a seven year project which is due to report I think later this year or next year, on the progressive outcomes of mindfulness courses for students in school about their resilience in adolescence. Mm. Um, 
and it'd be fascinating to see um, whether that perhaps is going to have a, a benefit for those students who've undertaken that that course mm. um, and you know who knows what will happen if, if it's been successful then they might sort of roll this out you know into into more schools um, and and you know we might see it alongside physical education sort of mental education you know we keep ourselves physically healthy how can we keep ourselves mentally healthy yeah. you know are they equally as important what's the balance yeah um, that would be lovely to see moving forward sounds like a wonderful pilot study it really does i'm mm. looking forward to hearing the results of that it should be really good now i think you're right as you were saying before the next six to 12 months i think we're going to see more of the the reaction of what we've just gone through with 12 months of lockdown we live in the countryside my partner and i do and we have two dogs so like pippa we get out every day we get out twice a day and we're very lucky. We are so fortunate to live where we do. And we live in a beautiful part of the country. So aren't we lucky? I'm just also very aware of other people who don't and who have been contained in a flat and how they've managed it. And it's, it's, I think we're going to see more and more of that. Hence, I think it's really important for people to know that there is something out there, a way to help them engage in a sense of okay whatever is going on around in my life right now there is that essence of it can feel overwhelming horrendous but if you give yourself those few moments of just being focused in right at that moment then it can give you a glimmer of okay I I know I can manage this next step and this next step and next step. And and that comes, you know, those sorts of conversations I used to have with my mom, who, as you you won't know this, Pippa, but Chris knows my mom was a psychotherapist. So I've grown up in that world. I think you probably are going to become busier as a guest. So, and, you know, from one standpoint, that's really great for you. But another standpoint, I think it's going to be a good thing longer term, actually, to enable people to be more in control of their well-being. Deb, you touched on a really important aspect there, that aspect of knowing there's a difficulty, you know, it's, it's present, it's here. And then from that, we hypothesize, well, what's going to happen next? Mm. Is it going to turn out to be this way, this way, or this way? And then, of course, each of those three potentials, we then hypothesize, what's this next step after that? Well, if this happens, then that could also happen, and that could lead to this. Or if it's a second path, well, this could come up, and then that's going to mean this and this and this. And the third path, if it goes down that route, well, this could lead to that, which is going to be even worse. Yeah. So, you know, and that's naturally, as I mentioned earlier, the negative attentional bias of the mind. You know, we we plan and we schedule, you know, how to avoid that saber-toothed tiger and that line that I mentioned earlier. But, of course, nowadays, those come through, you know, we're not going to be eaten in, in that sense. Mm-hmm. But our mind will still hypothesize about what could happen in the future, you know, anxieties and ruminations. And, and, and noting those at source when they happen. So when that thought comes up in the mind, that difficulty is there, it's present, it's real. We're not, we're not denying it's not real. But the next step, do we have any control over that? So do we spin off into what we call on the, the, the course pickle as a train of thoughts? Um, or, do, or can we ground ourselves in some ways? Just feeling our feet on the floor, just coming to our breath, just feeling as we're all sat down, the back of the legs, the bottom in contact with the chair. And if we can ground ourselves for 30 seconds or even 10 seconds, we might break that chain of reactivity, those thoughts spiraling off out of control, which can often lead to a large amount of anxiety and ruminations. Very nice. Very nice. 
It's a nice way, I think, to bring this to a close because believe it or not, we've been talking for over an hour. It's amazing how it goes. I told you it'd go quickly. Is there anything either of you would like to add? Just a slight aside from what Chris has been saying very wisely just now is sometimes, sadly, people um, aren't even thinking where they are going. They've just got their head in the sand. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is very hard to get into that place and meet them to give them the courage to lift their head a bit. Mm -hmm. So it's work in progress um, all around the place, I think. But there's, there's hope and there's encouragement out there which is a good starting place yeah and, and i'd just like to echo that what, what pippa's mentioned there you know every person that starts one of these mindfulness courses in a bit in a book or or in person you know i always say intention courage and commitment you know there's an intention i want to change i'm really looking for something to be different and, and that's a real motive you know motivator the, the the courage because actually we're going to be facing some of the things we've been avoiding or, or, or somehow else coping with. And we know people cope with distress in, in different ways. Um, and obviously the third one, um, commitment, because it's an eight-week course. And then after the eight weeks, I'm going to smile at people now because we do meet up um, once a fortnight for these you know, top-up sessions where we come back together as a group. They're really and great. That, 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 nice. that commitment to stick with our practice. You know, if we found it beneficial, and not everybody does, you know, I'll be very transparent and honest about that. But people have found it, you know, supportive. You know, that commitment to see it through. So intention, courage, and commitment. So for people to take on these courses. Um, but, you know, there are two other words which are very important there, Chris, which you use a lot, is gentleness and kindness. And they are very important words to enable people to do those three things you already mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right, Pippa. And that, that's a flavour, isn't it? Flavour of the course. Yes. 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 It sounds like a recipe, Deb. It's all all imbued with (laughs) gentleness and kindness. It's lovely. It's lovely. I love it. It's absolutely wonderful. It's um, it's delightful. And listen, I really appreciate your both coming on and talking about it. I appreciate your talking about what you do, how you take care of yourselves and what you do with your own mindfulness practice. And just um, talking about the process is is so helpful. And I'm sure there will be people who listen to it and find it a benefit for them. So thank you both again for taking time out of your day to talk with me. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much, Deb. It's it's been a pleasure. Thank you as well. Thank Well, folks, that's all for today. I really appreciate your sitting in and listening in to my conversation with Chris and Pippa. If you have any questions, I'll be sure and provide links in the show notes so you can get in touch with Chris. I'll be sure and provide information on Bamba and the book Finding Peace in a Frantic World. And on another note, there are a few other things I'd like to talk with you about as usual. And you know what? One of them is going to be about that pelican. What can I say other than the same thing I tell you every time. If you want to get some happy in your bounce, then buy a Belican. They're the best rebounders out there and it has made a huge difference on my health and my mental health. So if you would like to find out more details on the Belican or rebounding, you can get in touch with me directly or there will be a link in the show notes so you can go and have a snoop around on the Belican site yourself. 
I'd also like to say thank you to those of you who have subscribed to my podcast. And if you haven't done so already, please do so and share this with people that you think might find them of benefit. I've got a great rota of guests joining me over the next few months, so I hope you'll continue to join me. But for now, I'd like to wish you and yours the very best of health. Bye for now. Bye.